Thank you to our worship team. Hey, this morning I have some big news for you. It's that um, last night was the first time ever that my infant slept through the night. So you're getting rested version of this guy. <laughs> I didn't even drink that much coffee and I have this much energy. Can you believe that? It is going to be a great day. Hey, this morning is a family Sunday. And so before we um, jump in, if you are uh, in middle school or younger, will you just raise your hand so I can see you? Some of you just don't want to raise your hand. That's okay. Hey, I'm going to need your help uh, this morning because I, I think Family Sunday is something that we should highlight and it should be fun, but I have to tell you kids something. So kids, listen to this. From where I'm standing right here, I can pretty much see all things. And that means that I can see when your parents doze off to sleep and I can see when they're on their cell phones. And so I need your help. If you're a kid, can you lift up your arms and let me see your elbows? I want to teach you an old WWE wrestling maneuver. It goes like this. Elbows out, and you can do this, okay? It's a nudge. It's not a hit. So why don't you practice, just in case your parents fall asleep. Just give them a good, like, shot to the ribs. Like, wake up. Go ahead. Allison, get your dad. Allison, get him. Yeah, Jaden, get him. Hey, we're, uh, we're excited to have kids and worship this morning. And um, all kidding aside, I actually have something fun for you kids. This morning I'm going to introduce as part of our sermon a memory verse. And I want to tell you that if you want to pay attention and you want to memorize that verse after the service, I think Krista and maybe Cambria are going to come up front. There's prizes if you can memorize the verse. So that's going to be a lot of fun. If you're listening, I'll make sure to, to point it out when we get there what the verse is. We're going to repeat it a lot this morning. The last thing I want to say is I, I don't actually see Cambria, but I do see Krista. As a family Sunday, she loves this sort of thing, but she's sitting back there all alone, so it's really obvious that we stare at her. Can we just thank them for all that they do for families here? I, uh, I get the pleasure of working with them every day, and I can tell you all kinds of things. They have so much creativity they spend so much time thinking about how they can impact your kid. But I, I think the biggest vote of confidence I can tell you about Krista and Cambria and Soshi and all those who work with kids, Lima and Casey and, and Joel and Abby who are in Mexico right now with their team is they just love your kids. They legitimately love them. They, they wake up, they pray about them, they think about them, they know their needs, they show up for them when the time calls for it. And so uh, Krista and the rest of the team, if I'm missing you, um, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for that. We are a healthy church in large part because of what you do. So this morning, is, uh, it's kind of a bridge sermon. We came out of the Easter season, and uh, next week, I, I think we're going to be starting a brand new series called Summer in the Psalms. We're going to be in the Book of Psalms, which is going to be so awesome. And so I was basically given a, a blank canvas and told, hey, whatever you feel like God puts on your heart, um, to, to preach from that. And this past Wednesday, I was uh, preparing for our midweek Bible study. And we've been doing this series where every Wednesday we gather and we're just looking at the famous verses of the Bible. In this past Wednesday uh, night, we, we were in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is the uh, love is patient, love is kind, keeps no record of wrongs. Um, how many of you had that read at your wedding, by the way? It's a beautiful verse. Many people have it read at their wedding. And so um, in preparation for that, I, I just read the book of 1 Corinthians. And, and I, I was reading, and I was reminded of this chunk of scripture in chapter 1 that I just thought, man, God is like a magnet pulling me to that. I just couldn't get chapter one out of my mind. And so this morning, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter one. And um, I want to give you a little bit of background, a little bit of context, because I, I think if we pause and we ask ourselves some questions about this place, Corinth, we're going to dry, draw some pretty straight lines directly to Orange County in 2023. So let me tell you a little bit about Corinth. Corinth was this uh, booming metropolis of an ancient city. It sat on a, a small land bridge, and Corinth had so much resource and money because it controlled harbors on both sides of this isthmus, this, this small land bridge. And so this was a place uh, of bustling culture and up, upward mobility in society. It was a place where people went to make their fortunes. It also became a place over time where the, the Roman people... Uh, created a slang word, and the slang word was to Corinthianize. And to Corinthianize meant that you took something wholesome and good, say a, a young man in his 20s, and you Corinthianized him, which was to expose him to all forms of idolatry and darkness, sin, debauchery, everything evil in the world was available in Corinth. To give you just one example, 
There was a, a temple on top of a, a mountain in Corinth that was the temple to Aphrodite. She was the goddess of uh, love and lust and pleasure and sensuality. And at night, um, there's kids present, so we'll just leave it at, at night, over a thousand slaves were employed there, and they were men and women of the night. And that is how you worshipped in the temple of Aphrodite. And it was totally acceptable as part of the culture in Corinth that this was a sort of thing that you could do. You could go there. I read this week something interesting, that there was a joke in the ancient world. It was that young sailors often went to Corinth to make their fortunes. And they often did make their fortune. But the joke was the fortune never made it, made it back from Corinth because they more or less just hit the slot machines on their way out the door. Uh, they spent all their money. They went there. They made enormous sums of money in shipping and all sorts of goods and trade. And then the first thing they did is they squandered it on all that Corinth had to offer. And so as we kind of set sail this morning, I, I want you to think of this as the ancient version of kind of two things. I want you to think of it as what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, collides with Wall Street with no adult maturity keeping track of what people do, and this is the city of Corinth. Are we on the same page? Okay, so it is uh, overtaken with money and resources. Everything is at your fingertips. You could have anything you want, almost like DoorDash to your door in two hours. Does that sound familiar to anyone else? Um, this was a place where everything was accessible. And I think what I, I want you to know is, is this, is that we can pick and we can prod and we can sneer at the people of Corinth, but we would miss the point. The point that I think Paul is, is writing to these people is pretty simple. It's that it doesn't matter where your church is located. If you are not careful about what the culture is telling you to value, what the culture is telling you is true, what is wise and what is not wise, if you're not uh, maybe um, giving the right people the platform to speak truth into your life, what will inevitably happen is that the culture will seep into even your church worship. Does that make sense to everyone? And what we're going to see is that there is a handful of things that have seeped into the church at Corinth. But I want us to see past Corinth, and I want us to think about ourselves, because we live in a, a unique time, don't we? We live in a place where we can joke all we want, but you can literally push a few buttons and click a mouse a few times, and within two hours have your groceries delivered to your house. And whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing or a neutral thing, that has shaped the way that we live our lives. When you um, go down the street and you look at what is on the billboard and how people advertise to you, you can just drive right past it or you can say, that's interesting. This culture is beginning to shape us, if we're not careful, into certain types of people who are, will understand the world a certain way. Now, here's the problem before we jump in. We will understand the world that way then we will come to church, and we'll, we'll, we will assume that the Bible has nothing to say about that. It just has some wisdom that we can kind of sprinkle on top like a condiment, and then we can go about our merry way and never actually call into question the foundation about what is true, what is wise, and what is not. So, are we ready to jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Uh, we're going to start this morning um, at verse 10. The first nine verses are kind of an introduction. Um, it's kind of Paul's uh, way, and more or less what he does is kind of beautiful. He, he calls people and appeals to them to a higher calling in their life. He more or less says, I got a whole bunch of things I want to correct in you. You guys have done some really perverse, terrible things. But instead of just putting you on full blast, I want to remind you that you were called to be saints. We we're all called to be saints together under the lordship of Jesus. And verse 10 is, is really when it starts to pick up some momentum. And so that's where we're going to be this morning and where we're going to start. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, she's a, a prominent figure in the, the church at Corinth, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? 
Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I'm going to skip down to verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So we get a glimpse into the first issue that Paul wants to address in 1 Corinthians. And it's more or less this. That these people have been taken captive by their culture, and their culture has shaped them to really, really want to follow the style of people and not the substance of their message. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down. It's that these people are more concerned about style than substance. You got it. And what's happened is this this group of people at Corinth, this church that Paul took a year and a half to plant, he has worked very diligently. It says that he worked among them. He lived among them. He, He helped plant this church in one of the worst places you can think of to plant a church. And he's worked hard. God has been faithful. He's planted them. He's moved away. And the culture has seeped in. And the first thing he wants to address is this. You're showing favoritism based on the people you like the most. So it would go like this. Oh, well, we're all Christians. We've all been baptized, but uh, we got to make some distinction. Who are you baptized by? Oh, I was baptized by, uh, by Apollos. Oh, must have been Junior Varsity Sunday that day because I got baptized by Paul. Or, hey, when you accepted the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, who was preaching that day? Oh, uh, it was Cephas, Peter. Oh, uh, I feel sorry for you. That guy was just a fisherman. He is not very good with words. I hope you got the whole version, the whole thing. Because when I accepted Jesus, it was Paul preaching. And man, can he preach an awesome sermon. You see how this works? You know, I I think that sometimes we, um, we can understand what the Bible is saying without drawing the line to what that might mean for us. So let's talk about what that might mean for us, getting trapped in this cycle of maybe uh, desiring style over substance. How many of you are music lovers? How many of you like pop music? Oh, Pat's raising his hand. I'm just kidding. All right, this might make me unpopular. Get it? Unpopular. You got it. You're welcome. But our culture has taught us to value certain things. Let me, let me give you a, an Andy opinion. This is where we veer off the scripture. I'm just giving you a, my opinion. I, I sometimes turn on the TV and it's like advertising tickets to this mega tour for an um, unidentified pop singer. I'm not even going to do a name because I might get like a rotten tomato thrown at me. And it'll say like, this is the stadium tour. And then you'll see like 30,000 people screaming. And I'm like, that music is terrible. I don't know how on earth that person got 30,000 people, right? But in our minds, we think they sell out stadiums. That person must be a better musician than the the folk singer with just a guitar that plays open mic night. And that might seem silly, but we have a fascination in our culture with how many people show up to things. Did you know that? And so one of the questions we always ask is, oh, well, how popular is it? Because we want to be associated with popular things. Do you notice that? Now, I'm not saying that's good or bad. What I'm saying is that when popularity supersedes truth, we can get ourselves in a lot of trouble. Let me give you another example. Uh, I've had conversations with um, people like, anybody ever talk to like a street preacher or a street evangelist? Anybody ever talk to people? I've had conversations with these people that uh, are all the way like sliding sail from really creepy and strange to really awesome. In fact, I talked to a guy once in in San Diego, and I I couldn't believe how intelligent this guy was. Did you hear what I just said? I couldn't believe how intelligent this guy was. Why would I, in my mind, think that? Because there is an association with, well... If he was preaching the gospel in a way that was like really legitimate and really awesome, he'd probably be on the stage at a huge church with 10,000 people taking notes vigorously, right? Why is that? It's because there's something about image when we see it. We immediately think in our culture, that person is legitimate, this person not so much. 
right? So if there's somebody in a suit and tie and they have a PowerPoint presentation and they use big words, our mind tells us that person is fully legitimate. The guy talking about things on the street with a sign probably can't compare. Do you see how that's shaped our world and our understanding? I have one more example that I was thinking of as I, as I um, drove in. You know, we live in, you know we live in Orange County? I've said this before, we're like one of the only counties on planet Earth where you literally just make a reality show called Real Housewives of Orange County, and people are like, I gotta watch that. That's gonna be addicting, that's a binger, right? Yeah, but I was thinking about this. You know, you even drive down the street and uh, you see somebody, maybe somebody's flying up behind you in your rearview mirror and they're not driving just any car, they're driving one of these Italian muscle cars, a Ferrari, right? And they drive by and what do you gotta do? You gotta look. How many of you are like, I resist the urge but I gotta look, right? So you look. And the assumption in your mind is that person must be so successful to have such an awesome car. Whatever they do, they must do it legitimately and do it well, right? And the opposite might be a, a struggling mom in a van that's barely turning on with four kids and you just think like, oh, bless theirs. But here's the problem. This is what we're gonna run into. Paul says this in verse 17. We can put it back on the screen. Christ didn't send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, not in some fancy way that's supposed to draw you in or seem awesome to you to be like a well-established argument on every front. He says this, he spoke it with simple words, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Right here in 1 Corinthians, Paul says there is some conflict between the things that the world has been teaching you and shaping you to think are wise and powerful and legitimate and the cross of Jesus, because are you ready for this news flash, news alert? The cross of Christ does not seem wise to the world who does not know him. Paul's about to say this. And Paul is saying, if that's the way that you're gonna discern what is true and what is not, what is legitimate, what is not, you are going to miss the most powerful thing in the history of mankind, the revelation, the power, the divine son of God, who became flesh and dwelt among you. And you will hear that and you will think, dumb, foolish, doesn't make enough sense, not compelling, move on. So Paul is inviting us to consider that just maybe God has a different idea than what our culture has shaped us on foolishness and wisdom. He goes on in verse 18 and he says this. He says, for the word of the cross is folly, this is foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. I think this is what Paul is saying, it's exactly what I'm trying to communicate to you. It's that if you go to the cross fully formed by the culture and the world to look at what is true and legitimate based on the lens that they have given you, you will miss it. He says, to those who are perishing, to those who do not have faith in Jesus, they won't see the cross and see wisdom. But those with faith in Jesus see the cross, a, a simple wooden cross, and they think that is the most powerful revelation in the history of mankind. The only salvation, the only hope for the world, for the entire universe, the entire created order is that wooden cross. They will see it and they will realize that the thing that everyone else looks at and thinks that's foolishness is actually the epitome of the great power of the creator of the entire universe. This is where um, our memory verse is going to come in if you're a kid. Let's go to verse 20 and we're going to pause before verse 25. So this is what Paul says. He's writing to this church who has accepted the narratives of the culture. And he says this, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly or the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. This is what he's saying. 
He's saying it, it doesn't matter if you are somebody considered wise, if you were a scribe, like a legal expert. It doesn't matter if you were a debater of this age. In that world, it doesn't matter if you were a traveling philosopher that gets 10,000-person crowds in every amphitheater in every city you visit. It doesn't matter what is going on up here. You will never, in your own human wisdom, land at Jesus as the Messiah. Your human wisdom will never lead you to that. The only thing that can lead you to that is faith in God. God reveals himself to you. You put your faith in him because you know that you know that you know. Anybody ever felt that way? I just know that I know that I know. It's so hard to explain. Somebody who doesn't have faith cannot fully understand. And so what do we do? Let's invite people to church. Let's, let's expose people. Read the Bible. But you know deep down in your heart the only thing that can save is God revealing himself to people and for them to come into faith in him. So he uses these two examples from his culture. He says, for Jews, this is verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 25 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Here's what he's saying. He's writing to a, a church that's been planted, and it's a, a healthy mix of Jewish converts and Gentile believers. And they've come together, and Paul says to them, you have primarily been shaped in two ways when it comes to Messiah thinking. You converted Jews are going to be predisposed to want to see miraculous signs. That's how Jews are going to think. And they're going to want to say, okay, the Messiah is here. Well, tell me about him. Does he do miracles? Yeah, he does do miracles. Okay, well, I'm, I'm listening. Does he belong to the family of David? He sure does. Here's the genealogy. Okay, I'm listening even more. But here's the problem, and it happens throughout the gospel. There are people who see Jesus perform miracle after miracle after miracle, and they do not come to saving faith in him as the Son of God. Did you know that? We talked about this on Wednesday. There's people who come and they say, Jesus, we cast out demons in your name. We did many miracles. And what does Jesus say to them? I never knew you. Why is this? It's because Jews are demanding these miraculous signs, and when they hear what Paul says, he says, but we preach Christ crucified, they think, oh, can't be the Messiah then, moving on. It says, Greeks, they seek wisdom. And you can just imagine Greeks, I think even our stereotype of them is probably accurate on this front, and just like a nice crisp white toga, good uh, olive branch headpiece, doing a lot of this, hmm. a lot of stroking beards and thinking deeply writing philosophy. These are literally the people who get really excited. They wake up in the morning and they think like, oh my gosh, that famous philosopher is coming through town. I can't wait to get to the amphitheater to hear him philosophize tonight. Any of you? Any of you get out of bed and think that way? A couple of you oddballs, yeah. They're looking for big words. So you tell them, hey, the Messiah, the one, the chosen one who's bringing salvation to all mankind has come. And they say, that's fantastic. Does he have a big following? Well, yeah, he does. Thousands of people come. Tell me about his followers. Are they university professors? Are they published authors? Are they people with big vocabularies who speak multiple languages and are Renaissance people? Well, not really. Um, they're actually lepers and fishermen and poor people who have no job to go to, so they leave everything behind and follow him. And you know what Greeks do? They leave. This is Paul's words. He says, this message is a stumbling block to Jews. When we get to the crucifixion part for Jews, they stumble and fall, and they're not getting back up on to that message. And it's foolishness to Gentiles. 
to think that somebody would come and save all of mankind but not have like a really good vocabulary or a PhD from Harvard or some fancy degree and some ability to speak with beautiful prose. So it's a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to Gentiles. But Paul says this, we preach Christ crucified. Let's pause here for a second because how many of you have heard that before? Those two words together are an offense to people who don't know Jesus. Let me tell you why. The word Christ, what does Christ mean? It's the Messiah. It's the, uh, it's the anointed one. It's the, the savior of the world. What does crucified mean in the first century? It means humiliation. It means death. It means looking down your nose and sneering. It looks for a Roman walking down the road and seeing people being crucified up on a hill. It means they probably did something to deserve that. You don't just get that punishment, right? These two words that Paul is so excited to preach, for those who don't know Jesus, these words are not wise. They are foolish. The one who came to save the whole world was crucified. So this is why he says this. Those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ and the power of God and the wisdom of God. In verse 25, we can leave this on the screen. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Anyone want to stamp an amen on that? Can we read this together? On the count of three, one, two, three. For the foolishness. Before we move forward, I, I just want to clarify, Paul is not saying that God is weak. Do you know that? What he's saying is that what humans perceive as weaknesses in God is greater than any strength that any human has ever put forward. And what humans in their own sinful shaping see as foolishness in God is actually wiser than anything that any human mind could come to on its own. And I was thinking about this this week. And I was thinking, you know what? This theme is in every corner of the scripture. And so I want to tell you some stories this morning, if that's okay with you. And if it's not, then you can doze out and get elbowed by your kid. <laughs> Let me tell you this story. This is uh, from Genesis chapter 17. We're going to talk about foolishness and wisdom. Um, these are not on the screen. These are, um, these are just Andy edition translations and paraphrases. This comes from Genesis chapter 17. God has created the heavens and the earth. Sin has overtaken and permeated all of creation. And God looks in at his creation. And his heart is broken. And he has this divine plan. He, he wants to call a people his own people. He, he says, I'm going to call a group of people to be my people. I will be their God and they will be my people. It will be this beautiful covenant relationship. And he says, we're going to start a people. We call them the Israelites, the Jewish people. Are you familiar? Now, in the wisdom of the world, how do you start a brand new people group? You find some lovely, you find a lovely couple in their 20s. The guy's charming and handsome, right? He plays quarterback for Notre Dame or something. I don't know, whatever you guys are into. USC, fight on. Plays quarterback at USC. Smart, intelligent, charismatic. He's a leader. People follow him naturally, right? Beautiful young woman. They could start a family. They have a couple decades to produce as many kids as possible. This is the wisdom of the world to start a people group. What does God in his foolishness decide is the best path forward? A 90-year-old woman and a 100-year-old man. You guys are snickering. Don't think about it too much. In his foolishness, God chooses Abraham and Sarah. And Abraham and Sarah become the parents of Isaac, who is the first grain of sand in what God says will be a people group so numerous they will outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. Do you want to know why? Let's read this together. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger. You got the idea. Well, a handful of generations pass. 
God calls Moses. He leads the people out of Egypt. This theme just carries right through that story, doesn't it? One of my favorite characters in the Bible is the leader who comes after Moses. It's Joshua. And Joshua is tasked with finally leading the people across the Jordan River and into the promised land. Hooray! Except there's this huge problem, and the huge problem is that there are already people living there. Some of them are very violent. Some of them want to wage war. As soon as they see a people group of hundreds of thousands of people crossing into their territory, do you know what they take that as? An act of war. And there's this one group of people in Joshua chapter 6 that say are extra violent. They're called Jericho. Have you heard of Jericho? Jericho is this fortified city with walls meters thick, impenetrable. The wisdom of the world would say something like this. There's no way that we will defeat these people. Just look at them. Look at their fortress. Look at their power. Look at their violence. Look at their willingness to wage war on every front. We will not fight them and win. So maybe the wisdom of the world would say this. Maybe Joshua gets some leaders together and says, hey, uh, I'm going to give you each a white flag. I want you to ride out. No weapons allowed. I want you to meet with their leadership. Let's create a treaty. Maybe we can split up some of the land. We scratch your back. You scratch ours. Your enemies are our enemies. Your friends are our friends. Let's just coexist. But God in his wisdom says, no, that land belongs to the people that I've called. And he says, I want you to put your weapons down, and this is how you're going to fight Jericho. This is God's foolish way of fighting Jericho. He says, I want you to get the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. I want you to get your instruments, and I want you to throw like a revival-style concert that goes for seven days. And I want you to dance, and I want you to sing around that city for seven days. And on the seventh day, I want you to go around it seven times. And when you're done, I want you in your worship as it just like grows and grows and grows and more energy. I want somebody to blast on that shofar. If you don't know what a shofar is, Jim Reeves can tell you all about it. And they do. And what happens when that shofar is blown? The walls come tumbling down. It's because the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. It's one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. It's a, it's a classic story we tell kids, but it's not exactly a childish theme. It comes from 1 Samuel chapter 17. The Israelites are in a predicament. They are camped on opposite sides of a large valley from this group of people that will just not leave them alone. It's this violent group of people called the Philistines, and they wage war as their career. They love fighting, they love slaughtering, and the Israelites are at a standstill of what the heck are we supposed to do about these people. And they come to this arrangement where they decide that instead of waging all the blood, what will happen is each nation will select one single warrior to basically have like a one-on-one -on -one UFC-style cage match. I made that last part up. It's not in the Bible. That's, uh... And whoever wins is going to be representative of their whole nation and take the other nation as their captives. And this seems like a, a decent agreement to, to spare you from bloodshed, except the problem, of course, is that the Philistines have this guy whose name is... Goliath. And Goliath is not just like 10 feet tall and a, a genetic freak of nature. He's not just violent in stature. He has the history to back it up. This guy has fought in so many wars. This is literally his calling card in the world. He is a violent, violent person. There's been nobody who can defeat him. And when it comes, pick one person. The Philistines don't hesitate. We pick Goliath. And so he comes walking out, and he is taunting the Israelite people. And as soon as they see him, they realize we have no chance. There's no way we are going to win this battle. Do you guys know this story? God, in his foolishness, calls forth a kid who's not even in the military, who's just checking in on his brothers, bringing some bread. He left the flocks behind. His name is David. And David shows up, and he says, I'm not going to let him talk to us that way. I'll fight him. 
And of course, this is a foolish idea, but they have no other options. So they put the armor on him, and he's not even strong enough to move with the armor of a soldier. So he says, no armor. I'll fight him with no armor. And what does he do? He picks up some stones, puts them in a slingshot, and and down goes Goliath. This is what the wisdom of God looks like. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. I have two more stories for you as we kind of head for the finish line this morning. The next one comes at the very beginning of the Gospels. Jesus, the Son of God, is born of the Virgin. And he's ready to start his public ministry, the Messiah of all mankind. And it's his time to start selecting the A-team, the varsity squad that is going to change the course of human history with him. Now, the wisdom of the world has some things to say about how do you build a team that will change the course of human history. You could probably think of some more things than just this list, but here are some things I thought of. Jesus in the first century is going to change the course of human history. He wants a team of 12 people. Who should he choose? He should probably do the university tour to the Ivy League synagogues and ask for the very top students. He's going to want to surround himself with the smartest of the smart, and there's many. He might want to go to the temple and say, like, hey, high priest, who do you have your eye on as kind of the up-and-comers, right? He might want to go down to the marketplace and figure out who are the, the sons of noble birth. Just their name is like, oh, yeah, we know him. Name recognition matters, doesn't it? In our, in our wisdom, it does. He might want to find those who are wealthy, those who are strong, those who are charismatic, who can carry the message forward. Instead, in God's foolishness, Jesus begins to walk beside the seashore in a podunk redneck town, and he just starts calling out. First, he calls some fishermen. Some of them are so young, their dad has to still be in the boat because he doesn't trust them to fish alone. Then there's some like actual fishermen, not much of an upgrade in this scenario, but a slight upgrade. He calls a tax collector who's unique in the ancient world because it doesn't matter who you are, everyone hates a good tax collector. Some things never change. <laughs> Happy tax week two weeks ago. He calls a uh, political zealot, which um, based on first century history is probably on like an FBI's most wanted list. And he puts them all together because what could possibly go wrong? Okay. This is the team he calls to himself. And you know what? In so many ways, the world looks in and says like, well, actually their performance proves that he should have chose some other people. But that's not how it plays out, is it? Because despite all of their faults, all of their stumbling, all the warts that they have, personality, conflict, all of those things, the love of Jesus continues to pursue them even after they abandon him. And these people change the course of human history. We have, in large part, the entire New Testament to thank for those people. The last story I want to share with you. Oh, I'm, kids. Kids were memorizing scripture here, and I almost forgot. His calling of the disciples is just more evidence that the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The last story I want to tell you is one that is extremely foolish or extremely wise, depending on who you are and where your faith is at. This comes Matthew 27 and 28. It's Jesus' moment to confront the powers that be. The Messiah, the chosen one, the one that will return God's people back to him. He comes into contact with the powers of the world. In the world's wisdom, the world says, this is his chance. Let's throw him a victory parade to get some of the momentum going. He's going to go straight into that temple. He's going to flip over some tables, and then you know what he's probably going to do? We haven't seen this miraculous power yet, but he's going to grit his teeth and shoot lightning out of his eyes and just start zapping them. 
He's got the miraculous power. We've seen him do miracles. He's going to now turn that power into taking over the empire for himself so that God can finally reign on the throne. But in his foolishness, he hands himself over to death, the most humiliating kind. And do you know what? For three days, the wisdom of the world, do you know what it did? It said, I told you so. He's dead. It's evidence that he was a fraud. He was a fake. That can't be your Messiah. Messiahs don't die. But in the wisdom of God, three days later, the stone was gone, and Jesus was not dead. He was alive, and he still is alive. Can we read it together? For the foolishness... Amen. Amen. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. That's what I want to tell you as we wrap up. This is Paul's message to the Corinthians. But I'm fairly confident that if we were getting a letter from Paul, it would be a very similar message. We are living in a culture that is weaseling its way into every single open spot of our lives that we allow it to. And this is not the message that we need to uh, never engage it. We need to run from it. We need to hate on it. We need to just like avoid it at all costs. This is the message that says, if you do not know God's word, today is a great time to start. Because as Paul says, this is the discernment for what is true and what is not. And this is what I used to tell kids. If you just go into the world neutral, the world's going to tell you what's true. It's going to try to tell you that one way or the other. If you have nothing to push back on it with, it will get in there. It will start, start to get in there. I would challenge you just to consider doing a couple things. Look at billboards as you drive down the street and ask yourself, what are they trying to tell me is true? What are they trying to get me to do? If you drive down the 55, I don't know why they haven't changed it. It's just like a joke waiting to happen. But two billboards in, the, in a row, they're asking you to donate to Chalk Children's Hospital, and they're asking you to buy marijuana back to back. That's the world we live in. If you're a, a watcher of sports, watch the advertisements. What are they trying to get you to do? What are they telling you is true? And ask yourself, what does God's word say is true? I want to give you a hint. Oftentimes, what seems foolish in the ways of the world is actually the exact way that God is breaking into our human story and doing incredible things. I want to read uh, the end of Paul's um, first chapter of 1 Corinthians over you. Um, maybe we could stand together and we'll just read this as kind of a, an ending benediction. Maybe you could just close your eyes and hear these words. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, and not many of you were powerful, and not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is what I want to say as we wrap up. Every one of us has something going on. We have insecurities. We have weaknesses. We have things that we think, man, that will hold me back forever. I want to encourage you to press into those things. It turns out that David, the guy that we know as the king, started as a shepherd boy who said yes. It turns out that Moses actually ran away from God because he was scared, and he ended up leading the people through the wilderness. It turns out that Peter abandoned Jesus after his crucifixion, only to write a large chunk of the New Testament. 
It turns out that Paul hated God and ran from him, had to be knocked to the ground for God to get his attention. All that is to say that God wants to use you. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to have a PhD from Harvard hanging on your wall. You don't have to have a job that pays six figures a year. You don't have to have any of those things. What you have to have is a heart that says, yes, God, use me, and he will. God, thank you that you're in the business of using the things that the world has disregarded. And some of those things, frankly, are people like me, people like us. And God, it brings you great joy that, that we would be your hands and your feet in the world. Not that we would boast, but we would boast in you. That people would look in and say, that's got to be God, because there's no way Andy could do that. So God, we glorify you today, and we ask that in any way possible that you would use us. That we wouldn't get caught in our heads and our hearts thinking about all the things that we're terrible at, or the insecurities, or the things that hold us back. But we would be uh, just given a clear vision of how good and wonderful you are, that you can take even simple things and change the course of human history with them. So we trust you. We worship you. We ask that you would go before us today, that our Sundays would not just be a a message that makes us encouraged, but they would kind of be the precursor to actual opportunities to put it into action. So put us in conversations at work. Give us situations in our homes with our families, places where we can say, God, I'm stepping out in faith. I am your hands and your feet, and I trust that you will lead. We love you, and we ask that you would go before us into our day. Amen. Amen. If you have that verse memorized and you are middle school or younger, we would love to hear it. Oh, Krista and Cambria are back there with Soshi. They have a prize box, so please, we'll put it on the screen if you want to study it. As always, if you need prayer, uh, we would invite you to come forward.
Sweet. 